Earlier in the year, a mutual friend connected me with Roy Ranna. We met up for lunch to share some ideas about coaching, and it's fair to say we hit it off immediately. There are at least three puns here, but Roy is coaching royalty in Toronto. He's been called one of the most successful high school coaches in Canadian history, presided over the greatest upset in U-sports history, and recently joined Luke Walton's staff as an assistant coach with the Sacramento Kings. When I started my podcast, this was the type of conversation I was looking to capture. Whether you're a sports coach, business leader, educator, or athlete, I'd urge you to take plenty of notes as you listen along to this episode. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Cody. I'm good. Happy to be here to have this chat with you. Me too. Love talking about coaching. And let's start, I really like starting with kind of origin stories, particularly around coaches, because they tend to be mm-hmm. non-linear. There's a, a whole bunch of different ways that we all end up in, in the space that we're in. So let's start with yours, because yours is super unique and, and I know it, so I love it. But uh, I'd yeah. love you to tell the audience, you know, what was that moment for you? How did you get into coaching? Was there one conversation or someone approached you? Like, how did it all come about? Wow. Well, you know, when I, my first actual coaching gig was when I think I was like 15 years old and I, <laughs> I coached a nine, nine a group of nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds in soccer at uh, Christie Pitts here in Toronto, local park that uh, I was working for Parks and Recreation at the time. And I, I loved it. I, you know, I just, just felt such a connection with the kids, but I, you know, I was still a kid myself and loved playing sport, you know, grew up with sport and was a huge basketball fan and played ball in high school, et cetera. And, and then when I got to university, um, you know, I, I was a political science international relations major and I kind of, I kind of forgot about it really from a participatory perspective. I, you know, I was still a fan, but I, I really wasn't involved in, as an athlete anymore. And, uh, you know, my, my focus shifted on, career and I thought about you know my dream job was to actually be in the foreign service I, you know I want to be a diplomat and work in the embassy life so I could travel the world and and um, unfortunately for me I wasn't academically disciplined enough and my priorities weren't necessarily the right ones in university and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I settled on uh, and I wouldn't say I settled because it, it turned into an incredible you know career for me but I I went the education route and uh, while I was in university here in Toronto, I uh, I started working uh, in the shelter system as a youth worker. So I was I was working with hard to serve kids on the street, and, you know, driving a van overnight, and, and counseling kids, handing out food, uh, you know, just just keep them safe. And uh, I spent about two years doing that in the shelter system here in Toronto, and they kind of laid the foundation for my first job in education, which was, uh, I, I ran a program called the alternative to expulsion program in a, in a hard to serve community in Toronto, the Jane and Finch corridor. And when I got the job, um, you know, I, they walked me to my classroom, which was in an administrative building and opened the door and it was an empty classroom. There was no furniture. There was nothing, just four walls. And they said, you know what, um, here's where you're going to be housed and, and build the program. 
And so I, I you know, while I was building this, you know, walk into this empty classroom, the principal asks me, uh, superintendent actually asked me if I would be willing to, you know, give to some extra curricular activities. And I said, absolutely, because, you know, at that time, that's what you did as a teacher. You, you volunteered your time. That was just kind of what we did. And, mm-hmm. um, he asked if I would, uh, consider coaching at the local high school, which was called CW Jeffries. And I said, yes. And I fully expected that I would be an assistant that I would help out, you know, one of the teacher coaches there in soccer or basketball. I let them know that those were kind of my two sports that I felt like I had some ability in. Um, and I got a call the next day and he said, well, you're a basketball coach. And I was appointed the junior boys basketball coach at CW Jeffries, which was a bunch of, again, 15, 16 year old kids. And, walked in the gym there was about 50 kids and you know 25 of them were dunking we had this incredible athletic talent right i just fell into this incredible community and uh fell in love with it i picked up a book bob Cousy's fundamentals of basketball and i pulled an offense out of that a stack offense which was run in the 50s and started my journey we won a north york title in my first year and uh it just took off from there. I spent 15 years as an educator and a high school coach. Uh, you know, I left from a, a place called CW Jeffries and went to uh, a place called Eastern Commerce, which is arguably the greatest producer of talent in Canadian history at the high school level. We were the program for almost 30 years. And I took over that program, spent nine years there. We broke every record in Canadian history at the high school level and then moved on to the college level. So that, that you know, I was my, my entry into coaching was, through teaching and through working in, uh, you know, working with at-risk kids. And that teaching element is obviously a common thread for all of us. And do you think you had a slight leg up there, even though you, you know, literally were learning from kind of textbooks on the, the, the basketball stuff? Uh, you know, it's certainly what I will say is that my ability to, to be in classrooms really laid the foundation of my my ability to work with young people and not just in classrooms, but in, you know, in the shelter system in, you know, on the street, I mean, just being able to interact and dealing with conflict and crisis and uh, disappointment and, you know, and also, you know, all of the great things about teaching success. And, um, well, I just, you know, in a day, I, you know, once I had moved into the mainstream school system in a day, I, you know, I'd touch a hundred kids every day and that was before we hit practice. So, you know, you just got a chance to really learn about people and and then try to be really good in a lot of different environments and how you structured your classroom, how you structured lessons, um, you know, when to back off, when to push a little bit, all those things that we did on the court, you know, you, you kind of do it in the classroom a little bit as well. So it was, it was a phenomenal opportunity me for, for me to just kind of ramp up my learning in a way that I never even thought about until I just purely became a basketball coach. So it was a tremendous opportunity. Yes. I mean, teaching is the foundation of my, of my coaching. There's no question about that. And I tell this day, I mean, I, you know, I take more joy from impacting young people off the court than I do on the court. Yeah. And for me, I mean, the reason I asked the question is I'm kind of the opposite. You know, my, my background is on the sporting side and, you know, fell back in love with my sport through coaching, but it was, you know, that, that education of, you know, being in high performing environments from the time I was, you know, whenever they started the the high performing programs under 12s, I think for us, I, I kind of learned the basics that way. And then I'm trying to catch up on the educational side and the, you know, structuring 
you know, discipline around learning and learning styles and all that sort of stuff. So uh, that's why I like starting with, you know, how everyone kind of got into to coaching in general because I love all the different avenues that we bring into it. I love that it's, it is nonlinear and you can come from all these different facets of life. You know, I've also just recently interviewed on another show, Anson Dorrance uh, from University of North Carolina women's soccer program. And, you know, he comes through having played a little bit of soccer, but essentially a, a law program and then just falls into it and, you know, goes on and coaches the 91, you know, us women's national team and, 20 something right. national championships and, <laughs> and he's kind of fallen into it as well. That's why I love having these conversations is because you just learn all these different things about people. Cause you, from the outside, you just perceive them just as a, a pure basketball coach. And, and there's often uh, another story uh, behind it. Then you go into the university system. You're a, uh, when did you flick over to, to being a, a full-time coach? Uh, in 2008, uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I was ready. I, it was, um, I felt like it was time for a new challenge in my career. And, um, you know, education, although it has its, um, you know, it's com- extremely rewarding. It also had the challenges and changes in curriculum and, and, and you know, teaching styles and all of the, the kind of bureaucracy administration that goes into into the education system. I, I just felt it was stunting my growth as a coach. You know, I wanted to coach. I, <laughs> uh, I wanted to do my teaching on the court. I, I, I was I kind of felt like I had run my course in the classroom. And uh, I had an opportunity. I had actually two opportunities at the time. I had an opportunity to, to go to India and work for the NBA and, and head up uh, some of their development programs there. And uh, I was in some you know pretty unique conversations about possibly you know, taking that route. And um, at the same time, a, a local university here in Toronto, uh, Ryerson University, which at the time was really in some ways the laughingstock program of the country, it, you know, was underachieving for many, many years. It had some, you know, recent kind of glimmers of hope, but uh, it had been a long underperforming program. And um, that job opened up and, and I put through my name in the hat and I wasn't the first choice. But luckily enough, um, the first choice decided that he didn't want to do it, and it opened up an opportunity for me. And, and often in my career, that's that's been the case. I, you know, I haven't necessarily been the first choice, and uh, but I've stayed in the race, and I've, I've stuck with it. And you know, opportunities opened up, and I've been a little bit lucky. And I took over that program in in 2009, and you know, within three years, we were in the national championship tournament and, and had an incredible run. Um, we were, I think we went to five or six straight national championship tournaments. So we, we had a lot of success there. It was, you know, then I, you know, it was beautiful because I was now just purely coaching. I was, you know, I'm a professional coach now, full time. I have my staff. It was a different type of coaching because I wasn't just coaching my players now, but I was also coaching my staff, learning to navigate, you know, uh, university administration, athletic departments, budgets, all of those things that. Um, I really didn't have to do as a high school coach and, you know, in, in Canada, really, when you're a high school coach, you're a volunteer, like you're not paid. Yeah. Uh, you just do it out of, out of your, you know, your pure passion and labor for, for teaching and coaching. And now for the first time in my career, I was, I got been fired. Like it was a different situation. There was some pressure. There was some expectation. Having to grow through that was tremendously valuable as well. So, uh, I treasured my time there. You know, I spent 10 years in the university system in Canada, in Toronto and had, uh, 
uh, incredibly powerful uh, experiences in, in teaching and learning and building relationships and, and, and some winning sprinkled in as well. So it was, a, it was a really, really fun time. So let's talk about that process a little bit in terms of extracurriculars that you need to navigate when you go into that full-time environment or things become more serious, you know, you go into a professional environment or, you know, you're hiring a staff for the first time or, or learning how to build a staff. And um, like you said, dealing with some of the politics, whether it's university or within an organization. Something that I think about all the time is the coaching staff and how they're built. And, you know, we maybe don't think about, team dynamics as much in the, within the coaching staff as we do with the players that we have on the field or on the court. So what was that process like for you? Cause I've just rebuilt my team. So I'm, I'm fresh going through this. Right. Um, right. So I, I'm interested in how yeah. you found that and who you went to for advice on who to hire and you know, yeah. how, how you recruited. It was, um, you know, to be honest with you, I was, wasn't very good when I started out. Um, but I did have a, a particular vision of what I wanted to build. You know, I, I, you know, and I'll be completely candid with you. For me, I wanted our program in Toronto to be reflective of our community and the, and the basketball community that I came from. So, you know, what I wanted and I wanted to be, you know, I wanted my staff to reflect the diversity of our city and I wanted our staff to reflect you know, some of the great players that had played for, for some of the pro high school programs that didn't have access to university basketball in Canada. So my staff uh, was pretty different, and I went out and purposely tried to recruit um, former players to begin with. And it was, it was good, but it was challenging. And because some of our challenges in, in Canadian university sport is there's, just, there's hardly any resources. So it's not like you're paying you know, full-time salaries to, to many of your coaches. They're, they're there out of the labor of love, you know, just the labor of love. They're volunteering their time. They may get a small honorarium. So really you're trying to develop young people in that particular format as well. And at the same time, hopefully, um, you know, planting some seeds where they can become a head coach one day because that's what they dream of. So, you know, it really in some ways was extending your team. And I had a lot of young coaches and I, I had a lot of guys that, um, had did not have a ton of experience. Our, our our system at the time in Canada was still, you know, developing. You know, the coaching profession was developing. I don't think coaches really understood what being a professional coach meant. You know, everybody wanted to be the head coach. Everybody thought they could do it better. Um, and I was still trying to figure it out. I was still trying to figure out, you know, what what does being a head coach mean at this level? And really understanding that, you know, you know, recruiting, handling a budget, marketing a program, uh, you know, talent evaluation, not just on the court, but within your staff and building a cult. All these things were things that I was just trying to figure out and learn. And fortunately for me, I had a tremendous appetite for knowledge and I was curious and I wanted to get better. But uh, my first three years were really challenging. I turned over my staff a lot. Some of it was my doing. Some of it was people just weren't willing to give because they just didn't have the time. And uh, it took me some time to really find some people that fit and that were able to stick with me for a long period of time. But in, in Canadian university sport, it's hard because the resources aren't there. You just can't hire, you know, three full-time people and then roll with them for, you know, five seasons. It's, 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 it's very challenging to do something like that. If you can find one or two really talented people who stick with you for a period of time, 
you've done really well. And I think that's also why, you know, culture, and I know we'll talk more about this as we move forward, is tremendously impactful and important because it's the separator, the story that we tell, the the vision that we sell, the, the you know, the, the culture that we build can overcome a lot of those sacrifices that people make to be part of sport. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately enough for me, after, you know, some trial and error and much of it my own fault, you know, we were able to figure it out and find some consistency in our staff. And I was able to learn a little bit more about what leadership meant, you know, in that world of university sport. And I think as my, as I grew and as I got better, I, I think um, I was able to provide everyone around me with a better experience as well. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, it helped us win for sure. I mean, you know what, there's no way, uh, there are no successful teams without close and cohesive coaching staffs. Dysfunction in coaching staffs are, in my opinion, a ticket for losing ball games in whatever sport you're in. Couldn't agree more. I want to get into culture with you because I think we can really go deep there. But just one last question mm-hmm. on this. As, as you were, sure. like you mentioned, you know, you've got this, this thirst for knowledge and, and now you've got the time to really dig into it. Who or what did you go to to fuel that, that hunger that you had to learn? You know, were there mentors? Were there books? Did you go to other sports? You obviously had other, other sports within the university but, and the, the broader mm-hmm. basketball community, but where did you find that you really got the, the meat on the bones in terms of you know, your development as you're going through that process? Well, it's, it's interesting because I think first and foremost, I always, um, you know, the, you would always hear the whispers on the outside that were, you know, although I had won an incredible amount at the high school level, the general perception was that I was not ready to be a university coach because my technical knowledge of the sport wasn't uh, on par with, uh, you know, my other coaches in my league. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I chuckled, but I also use it as fuel. And so I've had these kind of interesting, really interesting phases in my growth as a coach. And, you know, the first one, when I got to the level, that level was really about trying to find ways to get technically better, to make sure that I had that covered, that when I was able to speak to my athletes about the sport and I was able to teach that I knew what I was talking about at a, at a higher level. And, and one of the things that I, and I've, I say this to, to young people that I mentor now is, you know, like probably the most important thing that we can do is invest in ourselves. And, you know, often we're waiting for people to call us or we're waiting for opportunities um, where, you know, people will invite us into their environment. Um, yet, you know, we're not willing to spend the money or, or, you know, put aside some, some resources to bet on ourselves, to go out and, and seek knowledge. So one of the things that I did early, like I did it, I went all over the world to, to, to try and find ways to get better. But early in my career, I would pick a city where I knew there was a real depth of basketball programming, uh, you know, whether that was in the NBA or college. And then I would go there and we, we have this unique thing in, in Canadian university sport where, you know, our exam break, everything shuts down in the month of December. We have about three weeks off. So I would take that time to go out and, and, grow. I would take that time to go out and, and seek out, you know, whatever knowledge it was that I needed. So in my early years at Ryerson, uh, one of my probably the trip I remember the most was I went to Philadelphia and, mm-hmm. you know, in, in five days I was at, uh, you know, I was at Temple with Plant Dunphy. I was at uh, Drexel with Bruiser Flint. I was at the, with the Sixers. Uh, you know, I went all around 
Philadelphia to as many college programs as I could just watch practice and ask a few questions and just find out what other people were doing, whether it was a, you know, a simple concept in the game or how they were running a particular system. But I also was really mindful of, you know, what that environment felt like and you know, how they were leading and how they structured their programs and everything from how they got on the bus and how they got off the bus. And uh, so it was just this constant, quest for for knowledge but it was really more about really targeting a particular community so that i knew i could max out my time so i could get as many different programs in and see as much diversity as i possibly could mm-hmm. and that investment in myself has never stopped it's it's changed but you know and the access i have is has gotten better but uh yeah, I've been all over the world and, and it's, you know, more recently it's been on the performance psychology side. You know, I've, I've dug into leadership, I've dug into culture, I've dug into player development. I've, I've tried to plug every gap that I have, um, not because I want to be an expert at it, but because I want to have a working knowledge that I can have a really impactful conversation now with my staff and the people that are the experts who I task to try and help me in those areas. I love that. Let's talk about that environment because, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, you know, culture is such a huge part of, of what we need to build now. And you've seen it at, at the high school level. You, you know, you've, you've built it there. You've built it at the, the college level. You're now exposed to it at the NBA level. You know, you can go further and you look at who's had sustained success not just within basketball, but within other professional sports, college level sports. And there's this similar theme everywhere. They obviously have different cultural elements, but it's undoubtedly strong across the board. And we're all kind of scrambling for what that mix is. If the NBA came to you tomorrow and said, I want you and Cody to, to go and start the, the 31st NBA franchise and get to start from scratch, where would you go first? Well, I think it would probably be Cody, you and I sitting, you know, having a coffee or in a, in a room and talking about our purpose. You know, why? You know, if we're the 31st team in the NBA, like, you know, why are we, what's our purpose? Why are we the 31st team and, and what are we trying to accomplish? Like, what, what, why are we and how are we trying to serve this community? And I think everything else would be crafted from that. I think, you know, I, I spoke to somebody earlier today about, the need to have a story, you know, what's our story? What is the story that we're going to create? What is the story that we're trying to, to write or to draw or to, you know, to, to create. Um, and then, you know, let's, let's talk about how we're going to go about building that or how we're going to go about crafting. And, you know, I think it's about people. I mean, we are in a people business. Coaching is about people. Uh, sport is about people and any way that we can impact in a positive way, the people that we come across. And the beautiful thing about, about sport, especially at the professional level, is you know, you can amplify impact incredibly. I mean, you look at what the Raptors were able to do, and you know, two million people on the streets of Toronto for a parade, and you know, even just some of the, the, the smaller pieces that revolve around uh, the Raptors, and, and you look at Masai's influence, and, and even the perception of Africa that, that has been impacted through the Raptors and through his leadership. I mean, sport can amplify so many things in a way that, you know, is beautiful and, and can be tremendously impactful. So for me, it would be like, hey, like, you know, how are we going to change the world? How are we going to impact our community? How are we going to, 
impact you know every single person that we touch every day within our organization and i think that would be the framework of that first conversation and the rest would radiate from there yeah it's an interesting one having uh, and i know you've been involved at the the national level as well and you know mm-hmm. having that as my background for the last seven years now it's it's already built in so you know what you know what canada stands for as a country and what i'm interested in is you know once i eventually go back to the club level and there is still a community but it it doesn't necessarily stand for one thing like our big thing at the national level is obviously the maple leaf and everything kind of revolves around that and being a national icon and and uh yeah so i'm interested to you know once i go back to to a club level uh, to really dig into what that story is because i think it's it's really important and I think potentially a lot of places don't haven't built out their story, uh, what they're representing and who they're representing and, and potentially fall down even at that first level. But let me get into this because there's, there's also a narrative of, so we have that collective vision and we're working towards this one goal, but there's also a democratization of leadership and power going on that we want our athletes and the people within our organization to have that individuality. So, you know, how can we kind of navigate that where we want to give people their individuality, but also be driving them towards this collective vision that we know we need to go towards. Well, I think, you know, probably the most important thing is to know your community, right? To know who your people are and, and to be really self-aware of who you are and um, give them opportunities to express that. And, you know, and, and, and I'll share with you that, you know, even at the, at the national team level, um, I, I would say that, you know, we've, I mean, in basketball, we've, we've struggled to tell a story and, you know, for us in, uh, you know, leading up to the qualification and the team is now going to the World Cup, I mean, you know, I was pretty clear that, that for us, it was a story of trying to inspire a nation and, and celebrate diversity because I thought it was very reflective of the group that was in the room. It was reflective of me. You know, I, I, I'm of East Indian background. My my parents are, you know, immigrants. And, uh, you know, I was born in the UK, but came to Toronto when I was you know nine months old. And who would have ever, I, I often said this to my athletes. So there's only one place in the world where, you know, an Indian guy or somebody of East Indian descent could, could coach a Canadian national team. And that would be in Canada. I mean, like we, we need to celebrate our diversity and anybody that's from Toronto and is Canadian could understand that, you know, that, 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 you know, our room was, you know, African descent, Caribbean, Indian, European, Asian. I mean, we had everything in that, in, in our mix. And um, so just being self-aware of who you're, you know, community is and, and what you're trying to accomplish and try to build a story from that. And then a lot of it is just side conversations. You know, Cody, when you go back to your, you know, to the club level, you know, are you going to be able to have those two or three or five or six, you know, coffees or small conversations with your athletes and your coaches and, and draw upon them and, and either you know, include them in that visioning project or ask them to compliment it because they trust you. And, you know, I was I was very very fortunate in that. Uh, you know, in, in our qualification process, you know, Tristan Thompson, and Corey Joseph, and, and Joelle Anthony were were willing to give to this and willing to be really authentic and send powerful messages of 
of support and, and, and what it takes to be the best in the world. And we, we, we talked a lot about those types of things and they shared it in the group with, with the rest of our team. And we created some really powerful moments, but those moments came through them. You know, I was just a facilitator in that. So I, I think there's a lot of things there and I'm, I'm kind of off on a little bit of a tangent, but certainly knowing, you know, who your community is and who your audience is and being self-aware of who you are and, and then just trying to draw that all together in a real authentic way can be really powerful when you build that story, whether that's at a club level, whether it's a high school level, or whether it's in a national team program. But, uh, you know, if you don't have a story, I think it's really, really hard uh, to build excellence. Almost impossible, yeah. And, you know, something that we've done and, and you know, I kind of learned from the Spurs and, and I know Brett Brown's taken it to the 76ers is, you know, these even presentations where, you know, the players will get up and talk about where they're from and, and actually give you the story. So it's, you know, kind of not necessarily good enough to say, Hey, you know, Roy's East Indian or, you know, this guy's from this background, but you know, the one that sticks in my mind is, is uh, manage nobly educating everyone at the Spurs on, you know, Argentinian wars and like what he was growing up in and, and really building off that. Sure. This is our story, but like, you know, this is where I come from. And, and I think there's a real kind of brotherhood that, that ties that all together. Once you kind of get past that first level with people and then have them, you know, share their truth, you know, really go through that with, with people. And, and so, yeah, I would say one-on-one conversations as well, but then, yeah, how do we, how do we galvanize the entire group and have them all learn about each other as well? So they're not, you know, isolated conversations. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and that's the, the art of team building. Um, that's the art of, you know, running a great meeting. Uh, sometimes that's the art of running a great practice. And, you know, as, and that's where, you know, often being a teacher and being a facilitator and having to do it in so many different, uh, in different environments, um, has been really helpful for me. And it's something that I've been intentional on. And I think it's something as coaches, we have to be intentional on. We have to figure out how we're going to do those things because every moment that we have with our group, whether that's, you know, if you're a coach or a CEO or you're a manager of a particular team, um, you know, every opportunity that you have with your team in front of you is, is it's a tremendous opportunity. I mean, we can't, you know, you, you can't take it for granted. Um, and, you know, again, R.C. Buford is one, you know, we spoke about mentors. R.C. Buford has been a mentor of mine and I've watched, you know, one of the greatest leaders in all of sport and how intentional he's been and, and you know, how good he is at those one-on-one conversations, but, but also how good he is in front of a group. And, yeah. you know, I'm talking about the Spurs a little bit. It's interesting that, you know, that, that in my opinion, you know, food has been a tremendous foundation for everything that they do. You know, the, the, the meals, the meals that the Spurs have had together as a team, you know, the infamous meals that coach Popovich has had with his staff. I mean, those have been, you know, incredibly powerful moments to face truths and, have laughs and share and get to know each other in a different way. And um, even that concept of a team meal is an opportunity. And sometimes I can take them for granted. And even within that as well, you know, I, I, I like to spend quite a bit of time on Twitter and just observe what other coaches are talking about. And often it comes down to this idea of, 
you know, planning and everyone wants to be perfectly planned and have this great plan, but there's got to be an element of, of being able to pivot as well. Like it isn't there, you know, read the room and say, I think we need this. Like, I think we need to shelve training or, and, and go out for a meal together or, um, you know, we need something more emotional. We need to create a more of an emotional bond between the team. You kind of got to read the room as well. Don't you like there's, there's that EQ element as much as you can have the best training plans in the world and the best, you know, we're going to be on the bus at seven twenty AM precisely. There's always this kind of asterisk to all of that, isn't there? Oh yeah. I mean, hundred percent agree with you. I mean, I think probably the greatest talent now is uh, in coaching is to know, what not to do, you know, and, and when not to do it, uh, you know, I'll share a little story about, um, you know, we, we took a, a under 19 team to Cairo, Egypt, uh, in 2017 and won the world championship. And, you know, we had a ton of defections from the team. We had a number of players who decided not to play. We took really in some ways, which was, you know, and it's no offense to the group that are there. I love those guys, but it was probably, you know, our, on the depth chart, it was probably some of our B and C level athletes. It wasn't our A-list, that's for sure. Although we had a couple of guys that had great tournaments. Um, and, you know, we were in Cairo. These are young kids. They, they, we were, because of security reasons, we were really almost kind of just locked up in the hotel. We couldn't go out. We, we really didn't. We had one trip to the, the pyramid as a group of heavy security. And we did not practice the whole time we were there. We did not take a shoot. We watched film. We hung out. We had some meals. We gave them a lot of time to just kind of, you know, um, breathe. If we did go to the gym, it would just be a light shoot just just to kind of keep their minds fresh and, and stress-free. And, and we won a world championship. And I think for me, I think a lot of that was because we chose not to do a lot of different activity and, and, and chose not to practice in a structured way. And sometimes in coaching and sometimes in leading, it's, it's a lot about what you decide not to do then as opposed to what you decide to put your team through. <laughs> that's the thing that's always kind of bothered me a little bit is there's this, this over planning that hasn't particularly sat that well with, with my style or the way I like mm. to conduct myself. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. Sometimes better to sit in the room and watch tape than then go out onto the court um, and there's got to be room for that as well. You talked about RC Buford and, and some mentorship there. Who else either knowingly or unknowingly has shaped the way you view basketball and sport and, and the world? Who have you drawn from throughout your career? Well, I mean, I, I think probably the most impactful man in my life has been George Raveling, who was, you know, who's now in the Naismith Hall of Fame, who, you know, was a, you know, one of the first black coaches in the Pac-12. And, you know, he's had this long storied career in the NCAA and was um, Bob Knight's assistant on the U.S. national team. You know, eventually took over as the uh, global director at Nike for basketball. And I mean, just, a, just an incredible man who, you know, just from... I learn more, I'm more inspired from just his life than I am from anything he's done in sport. You know, no, you know, hearing stories of, uh, you know, of, of segregation when he was a player, um, you know, his experience, uh, you know, being part of Martin Luther King's, I have a dream speech and 
those things for me are, have been tremendously impactful because I've learned so much from him as a man. And, mm-hmm. and now at this stage in his career at 82, you know, he's, he's still learning. He's still growing. He's still getting better. Our conversations are incredibly powerful and stimulating. I mean, he's, it's, um, he's what he's, he's completely changed my framework or my mindset on career. You know, when I was an educator and, and when you're a teacher, at least in North America, I mean, you know, you teach and it's a great profession because you have your summers off, you have Christmas holidays, you have March break, and then you have great benefits and you have this tremendous pension. And we stay in the profession. You know, we have teachers that are teach for 25, 30 years. And, and we stay in that, in that profession, many of us, because we, we start to count down the years to our pension. We have this kind of, idea of what retirement is going to look like and, you know, freedom 55 and all these kinds of terms that, you know, that have been <laughs> pumped at us. And, and then, and then I meet, you know, coach Raveling and it, like his old thing is, you know, I, you know, I'm retiring when I'm dead, when the tank goes to E, that's when I'll retire and I'll work and I'll <laughs> learn and I'll grow and I'll give my whole life. And, uh, you know, I never in my life thought that that would be my, my future. You know, but I think the same way now. I, I don't think about retirement. I don't think about, you know, when I'm going to, you know, pack it in and, and, and live off my pension, uh, you know, and just that mindset, that, that shift in thought was transformational for me. And, and, you know, he's impacted me in so many different ways like that. He's changed my whole worldview. He's, he's made me a better listener. He's, he's just made me a better man. So, you know, as much as he's helped me in my sport, and been there in my biggest moments. Um, it's never been about a coverage or, you know, a particular offense. It's always been about injecting tremendous confidence in me and, and helping me do that to other people. And also just making me think about life in a different way. So he, he's been by far the most important mentor and most important man in my life for many years now. And we'll give a shout out to coach as well. We were trying to get him on the show and we'll definitely send it directly to him once it comes out. But yeah, an extraordinary man. And for anyone that hasn't read his story, I'll include his, his website um, in the show notes here. And, and he is someone that, that I think everyone, whether you're a sports fan, a, a basketball fan, whatever discipline that you're into, this is someone that you should at least read about and hear his story because coaches, uh, uh, you know, I, I've been, you know, I asked the question, who have you learned from either knowingly or unknowingly? And, and he's someone that I've been following for a long time and learning from as well. And probably someone that I wouldn't have been exposed to without, without sports, but has had a, a huge impact on, on a lot of people, myself included. So We'll, uh, we'll speak to him next time you and I get together for a, a podcast, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> that would be amazing. All right. We've talked a lot about success. Let's talk about failure for a second. How do you get back mm-hmm. on track? You've done, you've done all this work on yourself. You've educated yourself on the X's and O's, but sometimes shit just hits the fan and, and things aren't going well. How do you personally, you know, recenter yourself and get yourself back on track personally so that you can have the, the, impact that you need with the team and the people around you? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one because I think early in my career and, and still to some point in time now, you know, at this stage in my life, you know, fear was a tremendous driver of, of my need to succeed um, and, and overcome failure. And, you know, uh, 
and and we have it. I mean, when you're coaching, and you know, depending on how many games you play, and now we're in the NBA, you know, if we, we, we may very well have failure at least fifty percent of the time, sometimes more. Hopefully for us, not as you know, less. But you know, it happens all the time. You know, and you know, how do you bounce back from that? And, and early in my career, fear was a tremendous motivator. You know, I was just terrified that. You know, all of a sudden I was going to go on this crazy losing streak and everybody would figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, I'll live this nightmare life of a, of a loser, really, in some ways. Yeah. Um, because I'm a competitor and, you know, we're competitive people. That's why we're in sport. That's why we, whether you're an athlete or whether you're a coach, I mean, there's a competitive side to you that drives you to do this. And for me, fear was a tremendous motivator. I was just so afraid of failing again or failing the next time. And I hated that that feeling of failure, and I feared having that feeling again. And it just drove me to get up and work even harder. Um, and at some point in time, that anxiety, that fear, transformed itself into some confidence, into self belief. Um, when you've won a little bit and you've had some success, you can now start to believe that hey, maybe, maybe I actually do know what I'm doing. Maybe, maybe I do have something here. And, and, and failure just becomes part of it. And failure becomes a guide um, to try and help you, you know, get back on that path of winning. And so I'd say fear, fear was definitely a driver early in my career. It still is. It has not left me completely. Uh, it still is something that, you know, drives me to go and, and give in a different way. But um, uh, self-belief kind of has, has creeped into my, um, my psyche a little bit and helped me deal with it a little bit better as I've gotten to this stage in my career. And now, you know, interestingly enough, um, this is a real interesting departure for me because, you know, as, as an assistant and as somebody who's going to be giving a Luke Walton in, in Sacramento and, and, and helping him, I mean, uh, I think failure now will be more about empathy and more about trying to find ways to support that person in that chair who lives and dies with it every night and, and owns in some ways the responsibility of failure for everyone in the organization. That's a really hard place to be. I've lived it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want him to have to feel it. You know, not that he has any, he's an experienced veteran guy, but uh, certainly that's a, a mentality that I plan to bring to the Kings and, and try my best to, you know, have him sleep well every night you know, and not have too many sleepless nights like I have when, when you're losing it. And, and, and he has too. So, you know, there's a, a mutual respect and an empathy that we have that we understand what we're trying to accomplish. What are you most looking forward to about, you know, your role now and, and being an assistant? Well, you know, probably the, the thing that I'm most excited is that I've, you know, managed to, to attach myself to an incredible man like uh, Luke Walton, uh, you know, he's younger than I am, but I am so impressed with who he is as a person and his ability to connect with people and his emotional intelligence. And like, he has so many characteristics and traits of a, of an absolutely incredible leader. You know, the subtleties of his body language and, you know, the positivity that he has. And I've learned a ton. I've been very observant watching him. He's really, really good and um, I'm excited to, to be able to help him. I'm excited to be able to plug you know anywhere I can now we have a tremendous amount of expertise that surrounds us here I think he's done an incredible job of building a great staff but you know in this role and I have a unique role as 
you know, kind of the one who's trying to pull all of this together. I think, um, I think hopefully, you know, my many, many years of experience building hundreds of teams, not just, you know, college and high school and short preps, long preps, hopefully I can add some value and provide them with some insight and be there uh, again to make sure that the, the ship is running smoothly, uh, helping him make sure that the ship is running smooth, smoothly and everybody's feeling valued and having a, a really powerful, positive experience. I'm looking forward to following along with that journey as well. Obviously we, we have a lot of uh, uh, mutual friends uh, within your organization. So I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing mm-hmm. what you guys can do. And again, I would mirror your sentiment with Luke and, you know, I've talked about this previously, but uh, I'll go and sit and watch press conferences and listen to coaches talk on podcasts, just, just to listen to how they go about it. And, and uh, yeah, Luke's definitely someone that. um, is just super, super impressive. For everyone that wants to follow along with you, what's the best way for them to follow you? Probably your, your Twitter? Yeah, I would, I would say my Twitter is probably the easiest one, Roy underscore Rana. Um, you know, I have peaks and waves where I'm active or inactive, but uh, <laughs> that's certainly a place where, where people can kind of follow me a little bit. Well, I'm going to be blowing up your mentions all year, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your phone will be <laughs> vibrating. So you'll, you'll have to go in there eventually. Um, Roy, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And again, for the, the majority of my listeners that are, that are coaches, whether they're head coaches, assistant coaches, whether they're coaching under nines soccer, you know, for their, their daughter or, um, you know, within the professional ranks, I think there's so much to learn from you and your journey and, uh, I'm looking forward to following this, uh, this next chapter in your life and, and looking forward to, to keeping in touch as well. So thanks for making time for us today, mate. Thank you, Cody. And I will say this, and, you know, a little shameless plug for you. I've, I've almost listened to every podcast that you put out now and it's really, really good. I, I don't want to be like, you know, I want to be authentic. It's, it's great listening. So you're doing a tremendous job. You've got, and I'm honored to be on. Uh, and you've done an incredible job of shining the light on leadership and culture building and team, like so many things that are of interest. So um, just keep doing what you do because you're having a tremendous impact as well. I appreciate the kind words and thanks again, mate. No problem. Thank you.